When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hang up and listen is sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks, re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better, with a mission to help those in need. One pair purchased equals one pair donated. Go to bombas.com slash hang. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang and use promo code hang and you'll get a pair at 20% off. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate's sports podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of December 8th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about the four teams selected for the inaugural college football playoff and the two, Baylor and TCU, that got left out. We'll also discuss the shuttering of the football program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, because according to the school, the costs of maintaining that program were shockingly high. Is it at Birmingham or just Birmingham? I looked it up on the internet. Wow. They use the at. That's what I do. That's what I do for the fans, for the listeners. Uh, we will conduct an exit interview with outgoing ESPN ombudsman Robert Lipsight, who's been writing about the worldwide leaders' ins and outs for the last 18 months. Then our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will talk about Grantland's series of short films on Landon Donovan, who played his last soccer game in Sunday's MLS Cup final. Well, we'll see. I'm casting doubt on his retirement. Are ah, you? I thought you were casting doubt on our doing the segment. <laughs> That's also possible, too. We might not do the segment. <laughs> Got to keep listening to see if we do the segment. Stefan Vatsis, how are you? It's full of beans today. I know. Like, <laughs> the dude has not stopped talking. It's not usually the time when he's supposed to talk, but he is just, uh, he's all up on it today. Author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Friday sports correspondent, friend Pierre's All Things Considered. It's getting spicy in here, Stefan. Want to have a good show. We're excited. Bring some spice. Bring in the spice. It's going to be the motto for today's Stephen show. Stefan Chiracha 
Fatsis, uh, with us from New York. It's the man. Who always brings spice <laughs> to every his, event. He's a walking condiment dispenser. He's like those shelves. He's a spice the rack. Little, that you put the, the spices <laughs> on, the spice racks. The, it's I like Mike Pesca, spice rack. Host He's, of Slade's Daily Podcast, The Spice Rack <laughs> with Mike Pesca. How are you, Mike? I'm well. I would like to announce that The Gist with Mike Pesca has just been named the third best new podcast of the year by uh, Apple. They uh, invented the word. What are the other two? Uh, it's no, like when you, get, when you get an A and your parents say, why didn't you get an A+. Plus? Ask me the ones underneath us. The tenth best new podcast is Ice-T. <laughs> the fifth best <laughs> is Snooky. No, yeah, Mike, if your podcast was, it was a, it was a competitive field this year. Yeah. yeah, Mike, if your podcast was so good, they wouldn't have even named any other ones as the top contenders. That's right. You it it just... turns out there's this little thing called cereal that apparently oh. people like. And then the Tim Ferriss show snuck in between me and the cereal. Tim Ferriss show. That's like yeah. the the five minute work week. Yeah. The two the two second work ethic. Yeah. The funny thing about the Tim Ferriss show, it's and I've very listened short to podcast. them, and they're pretty good. The Tim Ferriss show does last usually an hour and a half. And so, <laughs> I guess if you have a four-hour work week, you got more time for listening to very long podcasts. Um, if you do have time to not only listen to a podcast, but perhaps to work for one, we're looking for a spring intern. Candidates should live in Washington, D.C., must be available to come into the office on Mondays, do some research on weekends. Uh, if you're interested, please email us at hangup at slate.com if you're interested in being an intern. Hang up at Slate.com. All right, time for Whimsy Watch. The Whimsy runneth over this week. This is actually kind of a popular feature. And I think that might which be... Which surprise, surprised like, me. What is it? Heidegger's cat, which is the one that contributes Schrodinger's. to Schrodinger's dog. The one that contributes to the events, the outcome of events. I think because we've been doing Whimsy Watch. Wait, that's not Schrodinger's cat. I know it's not. I just was being stupid. <laughs> it's, San- it's Sanchez's troll. Right. We'll get to that in a second. All right. Um, Joshua Paul asked on our Facebook page if we're going to do Whimsy Watch for the NBA. No, we're not. The whole it's point. It's inherently whimsical league. Yeah. The whole yeah. point is that there is, it's in it's search of whimsy. whimsy. It's in search of whimsy in the NFL, a place where whimsy is not to be found. The existence of. Where whimsy ja- goes to die. The existence of ja- JaVale McGee answers your question. We don't need to do Whimsy Watch. <laughs> All right. Um, whimsy Watch. arenas before we figured them out. <laughs> whimsy Watch number one. This one was submitted multiple times and for good reason. The Rams coach, Jeff Fisher, sending the six guys that they drafted with the RG3 draft picks out uh, for the coin toss. And then the Rams go on to shut out uh, the the Washington team, 24 to nothing. Jenkins, Brocker, Stacy, Bailey, Robinson, Ogletree all went out for that pregame coin toss. I don't know if it's whimsical. It was awesome. It was trolling. Can trolling be whimsical, Mike Pesca? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends what kind of troll. The, uh, the Billy Goat Gruffish troll... Yes, can have an element of whimsy. The trolls that threaten to kill and rape you on the internet, not as whimsical. Um, what about the figurine behind Mark Sanchez? This is a kind of an Speaking odd... Of trolls. This is kind of an odd whimsy watch because uh, Ryland Aldridge sent this to me on Twitter. I don't think it's gotten picked up in the mainstream media, the whimsy-hating mainstream media. But there was yeah. some odd figurine lame, behind Sanchez on the Eagles' sideline during their game on Sunday. It sort of looked like Hagrid... Um, Do we know it wasn't Photoshopped? Are we sure? It seemed like it was just him taking a photo of his television <laughs> based on the quality of the image. I yeah. would say it's not okay. Photoshopped. Okay. Yeah. Everything around it was of such poor quality. <laughs> so I think this this is a new category. Definitely whimsical, but as yet unexplained. This is going to be some 
inside the locker room running joke, equipment staff. Probably has nothing to do with Mark Sanchez. Maybe it does. Some stuff. It could be. He's, self, he's a self-styled, whimsical man, though others would disagree. All right. I have a bunch more to choose from, but I'm going to end on, I got, I got on this one. All right. Go, you you go, go with the last one. And I got this from Thomas Boswell's column today about the uh, Washington Whimsi- football whimsical team. Whimsical column. Oh, from start to finish. I mean, from first word to last. Uh, about the Washington football team losing again, this time to the St. Louis Rams, which we've already noted because they whimsically sent out six players whom they obtained rather than RG3. Um, Greg Zerline missed an extra point and two field goals in this game, but instead of firing Greg Zerline right after the game, instead the uh, St. Louis coach Jeff Fisher had Zerline kick a ball into a locker. He made it. <laughs> Cheers and laughter when you win. It's all funny and everything's forgiven. Whimsical. Kick a ball into a locker. Break up. Break the ice. Make Greg feel better. What if he had missed? <laughs> then, then, would, then, they caught, then they would have got him. Doesn't Greg Zerline insist on being called something other than Greg the Leg? Doesn't he have a preferred nickname? I think he has a bunch of nicknames. Legatron, I've heard. Legatr- yeah. So his punishment should be, no, you're Greg the Leg. <laughs> All right, the field is set for the very first college football playoff. Number one, Alabama will play number four, Ohio State, in the Sugar Bowl. Number two, Oregon will play number three, Florida State, in the Rose Bowl, both on New Year's Day. The winners of those games will match up for the national championship 11 days later on January 12th. TCU had been number three in the weekly college football playoff rankings. They look like a good bet to make the top four after blowing out Iowa State on Saturday, but they were passed by Ohio State who beat Wisconsin 59 to nothing in the Big Ten title game. TCU's Big 12 brethren Baylor, which hired a PR firm to help make its case to get in the playoff, fired. Also passed up TCU, but ended up at number five, the first spot out. I think the PR firm would argue the number five is pretty good. They deserve a bonus. Better than that. number six. It is. Uh, Baylor coach Art Bryles complained on Sunday that the 12-person selection committee needs more members that are, quote, associated with the South part of the United States. Mm-hmm. Co- or, or Baptists. <laughs> committee chairman Jeff Long, who's the athletic director at Arkansas, just not South enough, apparently. Bryles also went on about how he's going to be buried in Texas. Other people are going to be buried in different states. Connecticut. That's <laughs> um, just not... A, a quality state to be buried in. Vermont. Here's my here's my view on this college football playoff. As a college football fan, a follower for, but, for my entire life. But also as a logician? Also as a logician. Anybody who will argue about the wrong team got in or the right team got in, it's just like not being intellectually honest. And that's the whole point of these playoffs. It, it Intellectual was the, honesty is the whole point of the It was the same the with the BCS when you had two teams that the whole point was arguing the same with the four-team playoff, and that's why it's going to get expanded to eight eventually, because there's it's always going to be an argument about, about something or somebody, because this is not a closed system. It's not like the NFL, where there are 32 teams, and there's so much crossover in the scheduling. There are more than 100 teams. There aren't that many non-conference games. It's impossible to tell, really, who's better than anybody else. And, um, you know, the three teams, maybe even four, because four you know, if you look at the different computer numbers or whatever, Florida State, TCU, Baylor, Ohio State, you can really throw them in a hat. But I guess it's more fair now because there are four and the two teams that got left out, Mike, are not like the third and fourth best teams. Once you get to like the fifth and sixth best teams, you're like, you know what? Uh, take another shot next year. We'll bury you in Texas at some point. It'll be fine. Yeah, b- bury him face down so the committee could kiss his ass. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that you said more fair, less unfair. That should be the watchword <laughs> for the college football playoffs. It is less unfair. Now, answer me this, fabulous logicians, fabulous uh, educators, people with advanced degrees. Many of the people on the committee have advanced degrees. The word doctor comes before many of their names. You have a four-team playoff, and you have what is acknowledged, explicitly acknowledged, not even a rumor, not even a phrase that's bandied about but not really endorsed, actually an official phrase, the Big Five Power Conferences. Again, you have a four-team playoff Mm -hmm. and you have Big Five Mm -hmm. Power Conferences. Do you see where this might not fit in? Hmm, Do you think there might have been a solution to that, Mike? Maybe There is no solution known to man. There is no solution known to man. Um, I would would say that everything, it is an injustice, although every other team would in fact be more of an injustice. The thing that I would love to see, because the selection committee's process is opaque, back when they had all those formulas and so many were based on formulas, someone could just input, what if TCU had played Baylor in a Big 12, by the way, 10 teams in the conference, so maybe you're getting an idea of why they have a four-team playoffs with a Big 5 conference if the Big 12 has 10 teams. Anyway, if either, if that, if that uh, matchup had occurred, I think you could make the case if they went by computers that who matter won, who whoever won, no matter which it was, would have been a top four team just by dint of them having that second quality win on the schedule. Which is the conference that has 14 teams? So the Big Ten has 14 teams. The Big 12 has 10 teams. In hmm. order to have a conference championship game, you need to have 12 teams. Hmm. And so the Big 12 got screwed because it doesn't have 12 teams. It only has 10 and couldn't have a conference title game, whereas the Big Ten has 14. Right. The necessary 12 can have a conference title game. Thus gets the extra quality when Big Ten gets in, 14 teams, Big right. 12 and out, 10 what teams. I, what I was getting and, to and was... You have to have 12 actual teams, not just in the title. Right. What, yep. what I was getting at was, well, why doesn't the Big Ten... And this is where college sports is heading anyway, toward more uniformity. And we've already... They've managed to ditch the other 63 teams that don't belong in the major conferences. So we're down to a nice round 60. So trade two teams so that the Big 12 can have conference championship you've got all of your major teams grouped evenly they can declare the champion through an actual game not through some pr slogan which is what the big 12 was was counting on this year and you've eliminated all the other lousy teams and you've got your own sort of much closer to the nfl style conference which is what we have now anyway josh so whether it's four teams or six teams or eight teams arguably you do what we don't have is the kind of clarity that I think we craved this year because the Big 12 is getting left out in the way they're getting left out. Well, this is going to happen every year. Of course it is. It's not... But if all five conference champions, right, if all five conference champions made it, and that still wouldn't satisfy everyone because some year the SEC is going to have three great teams and they're going to make the final four anyway. It satisfy everyone. Well, conference champions are... But if you're looking for clarity of the kind that we're missing here because the Big 12 got shafted, your answer is... All the champions of the conference championship game get to play in the in the, well, in you the final turn. You guys don't get to decide because you're not college football fans. You I don't get have to, a I get, I get to decide, and that's either. the idea of just putting all the conference champions in is dumb. Um, you're forgetting yeah. you're forgetting the Alabama LSU title game of sure. a few years ago. Um, well, that's the, why you need more than five. But the thing that yeah, you you definitely need more than five. You need a, at least at least thirty two. So. College football is moving more towards, as you were saying, Stefan, more towards uniformity. The bowl system back in the day was the most logical, actually, given 
how college football works. It's the least satisfying because you don't get a final champion lifting a trophy. But it was an acknowledgement in that era of the fact that these were kind of regional leagues and they played each other regionally. And then at the end of the year, you just kind of match up random, you know, teams cross regionally and you have a fun end of the year and thing. The and then it wasn't was, who was the national champion. You could right. argue about it, but everyone acknowledged that it was a subjective conclusion. Right. And so right. the playoff is the least logical, I think, of any of them and the most satisfying because you end up kind of creating this fake idea that through some formulas or that we can come up with some perfect system and you guys are trying to figure out what that perfect system is with, oh, if you only did this or only did that or you only included the conference champions, it's never going to work completely. The idea that you can bring reason and order to this sport that kind of defies them, you're just going to keep trying and keep adding things. And, you know, the BCS kept doing this. Oh, we'll add a rule that you like subtract two points if you like and they kept we'll changing the rules game, right. they kept changing the rules every year so right. the, the point the other thing to have Stephen, somebody hoist a trophy at the end so that everyone could watch that game right sponsored by dr pepper correct the the other thing that you guys are not talking about and especially you Stefan, i'm surprised is that when this so now that it's uh four teams the national champion and the runner-up will have played 15 games when it's eight teams the national champion and the runner-up We'll play 16 games. Well, you're assuming that the schedule stays at 13 games for the regular season plus conference championship. Right. I'm just – let's assume that that happens. These players aren't be, you being, know, paid? being paid anymore to play versus when they were playing 11 games plus one. You know, the season has grown and the revenues have grown for the teams, for the conferences. And the players are just getting – destroyed in four more games, taking actually taking away potential revenues mm-hmm. that they might make in the NFL based on, you know, the additional chance of injury in these games. I guess there's also the chance of more fame and, you know, prestige by being on TV in these playoff games. But everybody's calling for, you know, playoffs, for expanded playoffs and not really acknowledging how unfair that is for the, to the players. You know, there are a couple of things I wanted to point out as well. I don't think that I do think that they're going to go to eight because it's going to be so successful with four, and people will realize an extra week of uh, college football can only make people billions of more dollars. Can we can we also just stop and stipulate that these games are going to be great? They're really great matchups: Alabama, so. yeah. Alabama, Ohio State, Saban versus Urban Meyer, and then Oregon and um, Florida State. You have the past Heisman winner, Jameis Winston, the villain of college football, Florida State, and then Oregon, Mar- Marriott is going to win the Heisman. So yeah. those are going to be great games. In the Rose Bowl, too. The West Coast team in the Rose Bowl. So so the I, I look at Baylor. I wonder in a week, assuming Ohio State loses, that needs to happen for justice to be served. Um, will people look at the Baylor TCU arguments any differently than they do with the 65th or whatever it is now, 67th team excluded from the basketball tournament? Maybe a little bit because, you know, there are the, the argument for the 65th best team isn't really that heart-rending. The argument for the fifth best team does seem a little more urgent, but I think it'll soon be forgotten. This year, if there was only the old system, it would have been 
the most mind-blowingly unfair year ever because how could you exclude Florida State? If you look at the rankings now, though, Florida State is three. And the answer, how could you exclude Florida State is because we watched their games and it seems so clear that Alabama and Oregon were different. So I look at this as justice served and Ohio State is a beneficiary, but only for you know, one week or one month, whatever it is. Ohio State justifies the fact that three deserving teams get to play for the championship. Now, as long as Ohio State doesn't win the championship, we'll all be fine. However, if Ohio State does win the championship, hey, Ohio State deserved to win the championship. Those are all good points. I mean, I think the committee made a very odd decision to, understandable but odd, to have these weekly shows where they release the rankings because, you know, you mentioned the analogy to March Madness, Mike. It's not like every week during the year, the College Basketball Selection Committee is like, this week, you know, Butler's on the bubble, yeah, and this exactly. week... Right, and they, so, they've left not that to the Joe some, Lenardi's of the world, right, which is very smart. Correct. <laughs> that's, how it, that's how it should be left, because I think in the end, they made the right decision, and people are criticizing them. Like, I saw Joey Galloway, I think it was, on ESPN, just making the most inane argument about how, you know, TCU got jumped, but they beat Iowa State by 50 points. What's going on, committee? I mean, they got, they're getting dinged for giving out too much information because it's logical at the end of the season. Like, you know, if you look at Ohio State, they have this extra win over Wisconsin. They beat with a really good Wisconsin team 59 to nothing. If you add up everything at the end of the year and they had only released those final rankings and hadn't had TCU third, nobody would complain at all. And so I think they just screwed themselves basically by having this public well, either announcement. Well, either they thought they needed the publicity because it was new or they thought that they are so impressive a body that the media world would stand up and pay attention to what they had to say and treat it with great solemnity and, and, and appreciate their deliberation. I have a question for both of you, which is if Baylor and TCU were named Oklahoma and Texas, would the final four have been different? I think I think it's quite possible. I think that's well, a ge- good question. Geographically, it would have been really screwed up since neither of those teams are in Oklahoma. Texas, <laughs> fine, I'll buy. But anyway, go ahead. Um, I think that you kind of need to take a step back and realize how amazing it is that Baylor and TCU are in this position. Given in TCU's case, it was a football power back you know many decades ago, but in recent years before Gary Patterson got there, was kind of in the lower rungs of college football. Stefan, you're alluding to the big five power conferences. You know, TCU forced its way into that. Um, they were out on the outside looking in. And in they the were going to join years, the Big East, weren't you they? You know, got into the, the Big 12. And then Baylor was just a historical laughingstock. And, you know, this shows that there is actually the possibility of social <laughs> upward mobility in college football. But I do think if they were called... Yes. Given given uh, uh, athletic budget of like forty million and location in the state of Texas, I mean TCU <laughs> was in the Southwest Conference before the Southwest Conference folded in nineteen ninety seven, but it hadn't been a, a legitimate football power since I don't know Sammy Baugh in the nineteen thirties. But you know I like this show. I don't. So what? So people have dumb arguments against it, like Joey Galloway. I mean, you can either say <laughs> they need to be consistent all the time, or they need to just get it right. So what's the harm of having a show saying here's where we are today, here's where we were last week, but now at the end. They got it as right as you could get it. I'm fine with that. I, I mean, I guess does, if we, I think it does build a little excitement. If they hadn't done this, we would say, "Oh, those doctors okay. in there, right in their yeah, ivory yeah, yeah. towers." Yeah. All right. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas. It's athletic leisure socks that are re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better. I did a quick survey around the 
Slate office today, everyone uh, wears socks. Everyone enjoys socks. Everyone likes a good fitting sock. The 32 difference, degrees outside. The difference between a good sock and a bad sock, it's a big difference. You know, you have those socks in the drawer and they're like the really droopy ones, but you don't like to throw anything out and they're there and you're down to the last sock and you're like, I really don't like this sock, but I, this is the only one I have. I haven't done laundry yet. If the last sock in your drawer is a Bombas sock, you're going to be so happy. It's like the 180 degree shift away from the droopy, poor sock. And I'll explain why. Mm-hmm. They're built like a honeycomb. It is a naturally strong structure. So you get support. Like you'll get support and tightness wherever you need it on your arch. Just like Georgia Tech's helmet on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There, <laughs> there's got to be a None connection None of those helmets there. cracked. There's a little blister tab on the ankle that acts as a cushion. So if you're the athletic type, like you and Pesca, no need to worry about any rubbing or chafing. They fit. Think of it as a, it's called a blister tag. Think of it as an anti-blister tag. But go ahead. They fit perfectly. They tested at 133 tension levels to make sure it stays up without feeling tight at all. And the Y-stitched heel keeps it in place. And then there's they also... It, they should call it the Y-not-stitched heel. Mm. There's also an added bonus here that socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. And Bombas was founded to help solve that problem. They've donated a pair of socks for each pair bought. They've donated more than 150,000 to those in need since October of 2013. And if you go to bombas.com slash hang, you can get 20% off on your purchase. And they'll also donate a pair of socks to the homeless. Um, so get that 20% off. Go to bombas.com slash hang. And whoever you end up getting them for, for the holidays, if you end up getting them for yourself, they will donate a pair to those in need. Right, so it is not just the four teams in the college football playoff that will continue their seasons. There are 38 bowl games, including the Popeyes-Bahamas Bowl. I like the Popeyes-Bahamas <laughs> connection there. I, I, I totally associate Popeye with that particular Caribbean island. There's also the KFC Virgin Islands Bowl. Uh-huh. Zaxby's the, Heart of Dallas. The Church's Chicken Tahiti Bowl. <laughs> no, 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 not Caribbean. Bowls. That's, that's Dominica. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm making up a lot of great bowl games. Yeah, um, the Buffalo Wild Wings Citrus Bowl. I'm not making that bowl game up. It's the Buffalo Wild Wings Citrus Bowl? It is the Buffalo Wild Wings Citrus Bowl. The St. Vincent's and the Grenadine <laughs> Grenadine Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> the Turks and Caicos Bowl. Yeah. The Turks and Caicos Butterball Turkey Bowl. Better, but Betty Crocker. And what about Bitcoin? Bitcoin has a bowl. The University Bitcoin of St. Petersburg Bowl. The University of Alabama at Birmingham is not in any of these bowls. Not a real bowl, not an imaginary bowl, not you know a chicken a bowl? bowl. Zaxby's has a bowl. Really? Zaxby's Southern, Southern, Southern diner food. Let's invite UAB to a bowl right ZNX. now. ZNX. Should like we? Zaxby's. They could go. They're six and six. Well, they're invitable. They, they just didn't get invited. But let's yeah. come up with a bowl that they can go to. The invitable. The invitable? <laughs> uh, soon t- the soon to be invisible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, poor UAB. They're six and six. They're eligible. They did not get chosen for a bowl. Down the so toilet bowl. The program, the, it's not just the season. The entire program is over. Um, earlier this week, school president Ray Watts announced that the school was killing its program plus bowling and riflery teams. In a statement, Watts said that Fuck. UAB. <laughs> I'd watch out for that riflery <laughs> announcement. <laughs> In a statement, Mike. 
Yeah. Stop profiling the riflery team. That's right. Uh, or even the bowling team if you're on the wrong kind of alley while delivering the bad news. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. You wouldn't want to run into them in That's a dark right. alley. Right. Uh, in a statement, Watts said that UAB will save $50 million over the next five years by cutting football. The statement reads in part, as we look at the evolving landscape of NCAA football, we see expenses only continuing to increase when considering a model that best protects the financial future and prominence of the athletic department, football is simply not sustainable. It got really heated in the UAB locker room when Watts told the team they were being shut down. Uh, here's a clip of Tristan Henderson. He was a military policeman in Iraq. He's not your typical college football player. He's 26 years old, but he kind of stood up and spoke for the team. He told the school president what he thought of that decision. And you go home, sleep in a comfortable, big-ass house, but it's okay. That's why I'm 27 years old. In a week, 27. It's 18-year-olds in here, 17-year-olds. What are they supposed to do? Some of these guys came from 3,000 miles away to play here, to be a part of this, to be a part of all of this. But you say numbers? That's what you come in to say numbers? So, Mike, this was kind of like an inverse pep rally, like the inverse of what you typically hear in a locker room speech. There are programs in schools across the country that are getting shut down all the time. You kind of hear about it, but it's usually not a top-tier Division One football team. This is the first time this has happened since the mid-'90s with Pacific. Um, what did you make of you know what you heard from the players and what you've read from the school about why they made this decision? Well, I think the decision um, is a sound one and a sort of brave one. But whenever you make the decision, one class is always going to get screwed. It happened with Hofstra, and you felt bad for them. It, it ha- it's happened with every school that has gone away from big-time college football. And I think that, obviously, the huge-time college football has a lot of problems, but f- the finances of the schools usually aren't one. So Ohio State and Michigan and Florida State are making money for their schools. At what cost? We've debated this in the past. But those other schools, the not big five, the medium five, are seem to be really in a bind. There are some schools that have worked it out, but mostly they're being subsidized unfairly by students who, you know, these are the kinds of schools where often they're commuter schools or they're not schools with heavy endowments. And the students really are paying, whether, they're, whether they want to or not, something that approaches, you know, $2,500 over four years. And a lot of those students are graduating with debt. And, you know, why did, Why should they have to graduate with 2,500 debt so that the UAB can have a, a football team that goes six and six or whatever it goes? So it's a tough decision. And I think that it's sort of a brave decision. And I call for sort of eliminating that tier of college football and just retrenching as the 64, 65 huge schools and then a Division One AA will lose a little bit of money, but it'll be fun to have college football on campus um, division. So we need to separate out the particulars of UAB, I think, from the larger issue that you're identifying about mid-tier football schools. So UAB ha- plays at Legion Field, which is a 70,000-seat stadium. Um, you know, I grew up in New Orleans, and Tulane played in the Superdome, and that was always a big problem for them with at an on-campus stadium. Tulane has one now. UAB never did. They would get really small crowds um, in that facility. And so the supporters of UAB football have argued that that's an example and that there are others of the Alabama board that runs the you know states, colleges, and universities pouring all this huge amount of money into Alabama and Auburn football 
and just basically giving UAB the shaft and saying, oh, well, the program's not really doing that well. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where they don't invest in it enough to give it a chance to succeed. And so I think UAB, the UAB program was basically, you know, killed as, as much by, you know, lack of interest from the state as it was, you know, lack of interest from the student body or, you know, from fans. And there are all these conspiracies about how Paul Bryant Jr., who's like the head of the or the most influential person on that Alabama board, Bear Bryant's son, wanted to kill the program because Gene Bartow, who founded UAB Athletics, called Bear Bryant a cheater once. And who knows if that's actually true, but that seems to be what the belief is in a lot of Alabama. But that's like kind of the bracketed UAB part of it. Um, Is there anything you want to Say about that, Stefan. About the conspiracy theory? I mean, who knows? Or just about the particulars of UAB. Well, I mean... It, or about Bear Bryant Jr., or as I call him, Ursa Minor. <laughs> That's good. That's good, Mike. Um, I mean, clearly, this this is not... You know, these decisions aren't made um, without a lot of political baggage, particularly in states, at state schools, where there are these boards of trustees that manage multiple campuses. I mean, as recently as 2011, UAB had put forward a proposal to build a modestly sized 27,000 seat or so on campus stadium um, for 60 something million dollars. And that proposal was killed by the board of trustees. So. They also had the chance to hire Jimbo Fisher in the mid-2000s, and the boosters were going to pay half his salary, and the board said no, that they just wouldn't pay like whatever modest amount was left. So to me, this decision gets gets masked in the, the specter of the financials. Look, math is very fuzzy when it comes to accounting for what gets spent on a college football program. Uh, Vice Sports has a piece up that sort of breaks down this uh, consultant's report that UAB commission that was commissioned to sort of justify the elimination of the football program. And it pokes holes in a lot of it and a lot of the ways that universities do their athletic department accounting. Um, I'd be more encouraged if the president of UAB just stood up and said, you know, football doesn't mesh with what we want this university to be. We don't see it as a long-term part of our academic growth plan. We understand that it will hurt these young men that have chosen to come here and we've given a commitment to. But at the same time, we have to be thinking about the future of our university and we'll take the risk that we'll lose some hits in terms of uh, alumni donations and booster club donations and publicity and school spirit because this is where we think we're going to be. Instead, they went the math route. And the math route is often used to justify the closure of athletic programs. But let's not kid ourselves here. Just because a football team was killed doesn't – this happens a lot at universities. Typically, it doesn't involve football. Typically, it involves non-revenue sports like bowling and riflery and hockey and lacrosse and wrestling and track and tennis. Um, Are you going to so name all the sports? Every sport. Mm-hmm. All, the, all the Olympic sports. Um, so when it does happen at football, we are, we, we're, we're shocked and astounded and we listen to a, a, a plaintive speech, an emotional speech like that UAB football player. But there's a rifle person at UAB that is hurting. <laughs> A rifleman, Chuck Connors, Chuck Chuck Connors Connors is hurting. If you look at the Division I conferences that are the non-power conferences, I don't think I could ask, if I asked a casual fan, most of these schools, are they Division I or Division I AA? Okay, is is Dayton Division I or Division I AA? And in what sports? No, I'm talking about football. Okay. 
Okay, Dayton and Miami of Ohio is what one's division one, one's division one double A. The chasm in terms of money is huge. Are the students of the school, Dayton is the one that's one double A, are they getting less of a football experience? Is football more of a recruiting to the overall buzz of the school for Miami of Ohio than for it is of Dayton? I'm, this isn't an argument about the necessity of football. And we're not talking about big time football. We're just, I think, talking about a tier of schools that got screwed over by a lot of things, but a lot of it is the other huge schools that are in the conference that they call their conference. And Boise State will never get, that's the number one school that's uh, not in a big five conference that seems a perennially powerful school, but they're never going to get in a football playoff. And so what's the point? What's the point? A few of these schools can make money, but most will be losing money. And if they just move down half a division, everyone would be happier and it would be more fair and more just. And you wouldn't have those guys like we heard the UAB player essentially uh, executing his creed de corps in the locker room. Well, look, I am not at all opposed to there being even more of a divide between the big revenue schools and the lower revenue schools. And there being an acknowledgement that the ones that bring in the most revenue bear a huge responsibility to the players. And if you want to have basically this minor league pro sports, you know, entity attached to your, you know, institute of higher education, then you need to treat the players like professionals and all that stuff. But Mike, I think you're totally wrong about the accounting here. Um, And the Andy Schwartz piece in Vice Sports, and he's written for Slade, and he was a consultant on the O'Bannon case, totally demolishes this consultant's report. It's entirely fabricated, the idea that this school is losing huge amounts of money. They claim that they're losing like $8 million. $4.4 million of that is 85 scholarships times like 50,000. If you don't even consider the fact that they're not actually paying 50,000 for these scholarships. But Schwartz points out like if, if those 85 students aren't there, it costs the school nothing. The cost of that is zero to like have 85 extra students on campus. And a football program, like you have walk-ons that want to come to the program that actually will pay the school to be on the football team. Like the the numbers are entirely fabricated. They're also it's not like there aren't expenses associated with maintaining a high level. But they're also huge revenues. And you know, there are twenty three schools that have joined the top level of uh, college football, the FBS since the mid nineties. There's only one that's gone down. And it's not because these it's all like a Ponzi scheme and these schools are all deluding themselves. It's because it's a revenue generator. Sure. You know, like Georgia Southern just joined the top tier of college football. They have like a nice on-campus stadium. They sold out 25,000 fans a game this year. They're doing really well. Charlotte is joining, you know, and they it doesn't seem like they regret the decision either. UAB brings in more than a billion dollars annually each year. And this idea that students have to pay these student fees, it's all just like accounting within the school. Like we don't talk about the English department or the history department and, oh, they need to, you know, drop those. Obviously, they're not going to because those are actually essential That's why to, schools are to higher yeah. education. But athletic department but actually doesn't do lose money as opposed as opposed to these other departments, which which do. So if so wait, you know, you're saying UAB's football team doesn't lose money. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Mm. I think they do. Why do you think that? 
because no one goes to the games and because it costs a lot to have a football team and because their budget is so much bigger. UAB got $2.6 million from Conference USA from, from, you know, payouts. They get money. You know, you might not think any fans go to the game, but like 10,000 people isn't zero. They had 20,000 people a game this year because they actually were doing well. If you add it all up and you subtract like the fake costs that are in this report, they're not losing money. What about the fake expenses that they don't have to pay? I mean, this is I mean this this is also included in the programs that we think are cash cows, but you know, are, are they paying rent on their stadium to pay in it? Are they play I mean, there's so many expenses that are just written off as uh, assigned to the football team that but for the football team they'd be saving money. Well, look, Schwartz just basically completely shreds this report. Like, for example, they say that the program's revenues will rise to $4.7 million in the next seven years, which is a growth of $400,000. And FBS revenues have gone up 7 to 9% a year for five decades. And so if they had gone up that much, then it would be $5.7 million, not four point seven. So this report is just, it's clear that they that UAB commissioned this report so they could kill football. It's not an honest accounting of what the expenses and revenues are, which, you know, we're, which we're brings not... back, which comes back to my original point that if you're at least honest about why you're doing this, right. If they were honest be better, about it, then if they that would said be fine with we're that. tired of kids getting concussions and having contributing to their future, their future health. Great. That would be a principled stand. That would be like the president of the university of Chicago in the 1930s Hitchens who cut football, at least be honest about why you're doing it instead of hiding behind this cloak of, of financial shenanigans. And, and Mike, even if you agree, even if you do think that they're losing money, it's not, they're not losing that much money. It's a billion dollar a year business. It is a rounding error. If you're losing a couple of million dollars and they're acting like this is the existential crisis for the university. It's well, not right. That's why. I mean, I would argue that, yeah, th- why wouldn't they just move down a division or two as opposed to scrapping the whole program? So there is something fishy there. But, you know, I, I haven't studied the UAB thing that much. I looked at the Hofstra decision in 2009 and it was sad and it was they have a history there. But for Hofstra, it seems to be it seems to have been the right decision to discontinue football. And so I was perhaps applying a lot of the logic at Hofstra that it was an extremely unpopular sport that really wasn't making them money. Now, Hofstra wasn't in the kind of remunerative division like Conference USA. But in doing so, they focus more on academics. And part of it was as savings to the students and the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, which is a third party that's very well respected and it's not an internal commission, issues reports after report that shows how big time college football is for so many of these schools a resource suck. And the accounting, um, there's, and b- a big part of it is that there are so many expenses that don't get charged to the football team, but, f- but for the football team, you wouldn't have those expenses. I'm not that talking is true. about something psychic. I'm talking about actual dollars. And I'm by no means am I defending the existence of football at, at on university campuses. They take up 50 at least, very often more spaces that could be given to other athletes in other sports. They certainly do suck dollars that could be used to fund other sports. But the notion that we approach 
intercollegiate athletics as something that should be a money-making operation is a complete and total fallacy. Men's basketball and football are the only revenue engines on most campuses, hockey at a few schools, of course, um, and they do support other sports. Um, but the idea that without them, sports wouldn't exist on campuses is baloney. Well, I, my complaint is just that this document that was created is just completely intellectually dishonest. And if we want, you know, Schwartz mentions, you know, when Western Kentucky, I think it was, opened its, yeah. its books to a bunch of economists, they actually found that counter to what the school was arguing, that they were making money from football. And then th- that's why they decided to go to Division One, and they made that decision. You know, football is great for marketing for schools. UAB claims that it's trying to grow. So the idea that they're like these 85 bodies are like taking up space on campus is, is kind of, uh, you know, incorrect, too. So I just want there to be like honest discussions. And I think people are really susceptible to these economic arguments where it's wildly misstated what the costs are. And so sure. I just want there to be better reporting and more like more honest endeavor to find out what the numbers are. All right. Hang up subscribers. You will find an extra segment in your podcast feed uh, this week. This is not a, a Slate Plus thing, but Mike and I went to uh, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn where we got a tour of some uh, baseball graves. It's just an extra like bonus thing, and I wanted to call it out here and mention it. And if you're a subscriber to the Hang Up Listen feed and iTunes or in any of your uh, favorite podcast programs, you will have gotten it already. And so it's kind of a nudge to subscribe. It, it helps us if you subscribe to us on iTunes or anywhere else. Um, make sure to get our show every week as soon as it comes out and also these extra bonus things. So if you're on iTunes, you can do that by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast, and you can also subscribe in Stitcher or Downcast or, or whatever else. But if you are on iTunes, it's iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. I'm now very pleased to welcome in Robert Lipsight, who has just ended his tenure as ESPN's ombudsman before he joined the Borg, or at least studied the Borg and learned its mores. Bob was a great and iconoclastic sports columnist for the New York Times and the author of many books, including Sports World, a landmark critique of jock culture, Bob, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, my pleasure. Um, so the first sentence of your last column was, ESPN is an empire. Did you write it in that tone of voice that I just <laughs> that I just read it in? Well, that... I mean, do you think I was wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. Um, and I, I think... No, I mean, it is. I mean, the, the vastness of it is mind-boggling. I mean, uh, hundreds of radio stations all those talk shows, just to begin with. And then it goes just on and on and on. The part of the empire that that blew my mind the most was the SEC network, the idea that you could own an entire conference, uh, and arguably the most professionalized or commodified uh, of the college conferences. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an empire. And yet what was so interesting is that even though they do act imperially, they still are very sensitive to criticism. They feel somehow uh, an underdog with a target on their back because all these places out there, including, I'm sure, the Slate podcast, uh, is, is aiming at the big target on their back. Well, aren't, aren't all dictators sensitive? Aren't all empires sensitive and worried about their their someday downfall? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, um, I missed Rome, not by much, I guess. <laughs> but uh, this You were is, around for the Soviet Union, though. I mean, this, this is why it was such a wonderful job. I loved it. It was so interesting, and, and it was my, my first real empire. So I think we should focus first on the journalism. I mean, I was going to—you you had a, a nice kind of intro there. I mean, I was going to talk about how ESPN is so vast that it's hard to even think of it as a single thing that you can kind of like look at and understand. So maybe we should just kind of pick off little bits of it, like we're, uh, you know, Remora. But, um, you know, the journalistic part is interesting to us. And, you know, you wrote in your last column that it's interesting to ESPN as well, but maybe not, definitely not the central part of their business. And so how do you, how did you come to see how they viewed journalism? Well, that was really the only part of it that I could get a grip on. And, and I, I thought the only part of it that I had any right to criticize uh, with any credibility. I mean, the entertainment aspects of it were fine. I mean, you know, they, they do a good job, I think, in presenting live games. Uh, and they certainly have a very avid audience. I really started from the point of view of my mailbag. I, I just towed it up. I, I got somewhere a little south of 20,000 emails in my 18 months, and I read them. You know, the most of them really were not about Bill Simmons or journalism or Roger Goodell. Most of them were about why is Ray Lewis still on the air, and why do you guys hate hockey? And West Coast bias? I mean, East Coast bias? I took that seriously. I mean, I, I <laughs> my feeling about hockey is that I remember when I used to cover games at Madison Square Garden for the Times, uh, and it was packed every every night. But I, I really came to the realization that every hockey fan in New York was at the Garden. I mean, there was nobody else outside there. And um, if you've seen Islander attendance figures, you know you're right. <laughs> Yeah, of course. And, uh, I mean, it's a great game, but uh, it's it's a a boutique game, really, in this country. But what was really interesting to me was that the core ESPN fan, I believe, is a white Christian in the southeastern part of America. Those are the people who wrote to me. And what really bothered them was the intrusion of what they called societal issues into what was, in a way, a kind of sacred place. And I, I think this is recapitulated throughout sports world. It's not just ESPN. But that people so often come to sports as this sanctuary from the real world where they can sit in their living room with their family and not be assailed by anything that's going to upset them. And, and some of the things that, that they wrote to me about that really upset them was, quote, two homosexuals kissing. This, of course, was when Michael Sam was drafted by the NFL. And um, as, as any draft choice would do if his girlfriend was nearby, he kissed his boyfriend. Uh, and, and that was uh, very troubling. And they felt that that was really kind of sticking something in their face, and then it was repeated on every sports center. It's there. It's, it's in that junction between what sports is supposed to be for some people, this 
Never Never Land, this Oz, uh, and what it really is, which is a, a kind of window on uh, reality. I mean, it's bread and circuses, and, and certainly some large segment of the population is always going to want that. I mean, we don't want to know about concussions and, and lifelong injuries of the football players that we want to watch on Sunday. And yet, tough luck, we do now. That's how the sports media have evolved. I think the question for ESPN is, have if we, you know, as you step back and assess their handling of these two jobs as purveyor of sports and as of critic of sports, did it meet your standards? Did it, do you feel like they are doing well enough or is there more that no, they can oh, no, do? No, 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 absolutely not. And I, and I think that I was very clear and I wrote that, that ESPN could be better. I think what I did come to understand in 18 months, <laughs> and, and this is not a sleeping with the anime rant, I really came to understand the difficulty of, of walking that line for them. I mean, their main job really is putting up those pretty pictures, buying rights, promoting games that they may actually own in some way, uh, promoting certain athletes, uh, selling the spectacular. And where that is interfered with by the reality that the pleasure that you're getting is at the terrific physical and often emotional cost uh, of those commodified ball players. I mean, no wonder there are fantasy leagues, because uh, we really don't want to think that these people are real people. Uh, and then when they do emerge as real people, they hit their girlfriends, we get very exercised, and we want them executed. So I, I think it's really difficult. On the other hand, in terms of sports journalism, other than the New York Times, which has been doing, I think, uh, an amazing job in the last couple of years, the ESPN coverage of concussions, the, the, the Fainerroo brothers, has been absolutely spectacular. On, on the one side, yeah, they withdrew their logo from Frontline, the powerful documentary about the concussions. Yet, on the other hand, uh, they have done, ESPN has clearly done, the best concussion uh, journalism. So you've been in many a newsroom, Bob, and you've also, of course, seen ownership up close because we're talking about ESPN. It's both a journalistic enterprise and a business enterprise. What one or maybe two things just surprised you where you were like, wow, I can't believe you guys do it that way. <laughs> what do you mean? There are systems of covering stories, the traditions within ESPN that you've never seen. The, I mean, you read the book, these guys have all the fun. It makes it seem perhaps this culture has been eradicated, but it makes it seem like a frat house at times, totally not in keeping with a professional newsroom. So anything like that, either for good or bad, that you would kind of never seen anywhere else and were pretty surprising that that's the way they did it. Well, not once I understood that ESPN is, is kind of emerging from its adolescence into a mature period. It's really not all that old. We, we keep thinking about it because that's how we're, we become interested in thinking about ESPN as a news-gathering organization. It's not. And, and it started out as this Bush League Connecticut network for local games in a place in Connecticut where you can't get to because it was the cheapest land available. And now it's in this monstrous bubble in the middle of Connecticut. It's, it's a campus sprouting with dishes, and it's worldwide. 
uh, it may very well be the worldwide leader in sports entertainment. And it grew very fast. It grew without any kind of uh, traditional journalism heritage. And, and it's still kind of finding its way. And now it has a lot of money, so it can reach out and buy some really good journalists, which it has done. Uh, it's still trying to figure out how to use them properly. Its rivals, if it has rivals, are you know, CBS and, and Fox, and they really are basically other kinds of entertainment and news organizations. What would be really interesting is if um, something like Bleacher Report you know, starts to grow and with enough money starts to challenge them on the edges with live entertainment and journalism. So kind of one of the themes that you keep coming back to is, uh, you know, in your columns, what you talked about now is conflicts of interest, both real and imagined. And talking about what you got in your mailbag, it almost sounds like by practicing journalism, ESPN risks alienating its core audience. And at the same time, ESPN has so much more money so much more power and so much more reach than traditional news organizations that they're hiring all of these journalists away from, you know, famous, rightly famous quality news organizations, whether they're, you know, newspapers or magazines or whatever. And so I hate to use the the adjective troubling. It's a really lame adjective. Um, But that's that's the one that comes to mind. When you combine all these things together, the ESPN audience not wanting them to practice journalism, um, ESPN's bottom line being most affected by the entertainment business, and ESPN nevertheless acquiring all of these great journalists from organizations whose primary interest is practicing journalism. Doesn't that all combine into something that, as people who want there to be coverage of these issues in sports, that we shouldn't be so happy about? Yeah, and, and, and this is this is ESPN's big problem. I, I think that the present administration uh, of ESPN really wants to be known for quality journalism. But the idea is, what really is quality journalism? Is quality journalism turning over every rock in the NFL? As, as I might think it is. Is quality journalism, you know, merely telling us ahead of everybody else, uh, which college coach is going to be uh, fired. I mean, so, so much of, of ESPN journalism is really transactions, the, the little shards. The conflict is between transactions and transgressions. Uh, on the one hand, they're better than anybody else in telling us who is going to be traded, who's hurt, you know, who's going to actually start on Sunday. And, and really where they have to go is the transgressions, the evil that the leagues do. Uh, I think concussions is the biggest story in sports. And on, on the one hand, they've done spectacular coverage, but it hasn't been day-to-day and consistent. I think that any you know, multi-billion dollar organization that can have a uni watch, which is a, a weekly look at fashions and uniforms, can also have what I would call a conch watch, which is a, a weekly or daily look at who's getting concussed, what happens to them? Do they get sent back into the game too quickly? And when do they ever play again and, and follow them? 
Yeah, I mean, you can hire the Fainerud brothers. You can hire of Don Van Natta from the Times. They've got good people, Bob, Lee, Jeremy, Shap, good writers in Grantland. But what, what they don't have is what I think is a, is a really consistent core of, of journalists embedded with all the leagues, all the teams, all the college conferences who are able to supply really valid stories of what's going on. I mean, I think it's criminal that uh, Jameis Winston is uh, still playing football. And yet, when the Ray Rice scandal broke, it was ESPN that led the mainstream journalistic coverage of how the NFL behaved. And in similarly, in other cases, ESPN has, has grabbed it. And yet the institution ESPN is kind of buried in its programming schedule outside the lines. It's great investigative news magazine show. So does this argue, Bob, that, the, I mean, is your solution that you sort of hinted at in your last column to sort of separate that unit out, to have ESPN journalism be a completely separate entity that's not at Bristol, that, that coordinates somehow with the vaster empire, but is really on its own, is really independent? Would that Absolutely. make a difference? Absolutely. That's the only way it can go. But, I mean, you just made me think of something. So here we have the... Uh, we have on one hand Obamacare, on the other hand we have the drone program. <laughs> so I mean, I, I, we have to hold the, this conflict of, of two very different things going on at the same time. And as far as ESPN is concerned, sure, I think that uh, I would spin off journalism. Um, I would, in my last column, I, I kind of, kind of created a central news desk that would not be beholden to any other part of ESPN and that would have its own dedicated reporters and editors and broadcasters. I think that would be very hard for them to do. But that that would be the only way in which they would do it, be able to cover journalism and and not run up against the leaks. I mean, at at the moment when there's a really difficult as we would say, story coming up, they will give the league or the team a heads up. They see it as a kind of courtesy to a business partner. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that journalistic organizations do that, that they tell somebody, unless they're looking for a quote or a response, uh, you know, give them a heads up that we're going to come down on you now. Where did you think you had your biggest impact? I, I don't know that I had any impact at all. You can't really? There's nothing tangible that came from a column? I, I, I don't know. I, I really haven't seen anything. I, I would like to think that, you know, may, maybe there were people within ESPN thanked me, and they said, you know, it was a moral nudge, and it woke some people up to look at the organization a little differently. Maybe that might be true. But I, I don't think that... Um, I don't think that I did. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very powerful organization that I think does most things quite right within its uh, context. Uh, what it still hasn't gotten right is day-to-day journalism. So we talked about the Bill Simmons suspension on the podcast, and you wrote about it. And there was another recent bizarre personnel move where they seem to suspend Keith Law, the baseball writer, from Twitter for, like, arguing with people now, 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 about evolution? Yeah, now, I, I was kind of grateful that that happened right at the end of my tenure because I would have to defend that. And here's why. 
ESPN has very specific rules, and I, I wish they had more rules, actually. I think that part of the problem is that their standards and practices could be a lot tighter than they are. But uh, one of the rules is that you don't diss a colleague, especially on Twitter. Now, that's exactly what Keith Law did. You know, on the other hand, you know, <laughs> why, why is Kurt Schilling writing about creationism. I mean, I, I don't think that a fastball well, and, and, and a bloody sock you know, excuses stupidity. But he, he did it on his own. Keith Law did it under the auspices of his uh, ESPN Twitter. I don't so, know. Keith Law, Keith Law didn't even criticize Schilling. He just pointed out that you might want to actually consult some science before you make these kinds of pronouncements. Right, so, but that, that, that was pretty snarky. By the way, I, I, I agree with Keith Law down the line. Of course, Keith Law was, was morally right, but I think that uh, he was right up against ESPN. And I, I think particularly in this time uh, when everybody is so tender about ESPN suspending Bill Simmons, I think that anybody uh, who violates anything there is going to get slapped down. Well, Bob, you know, you're usually right about everything. It's comforting to know that you could be wrong about one single thing (laughs) in your tenure as the ESPN ombudsman. Come on, you can't suspend that guy. You can't suspend the guy for uh, defending evolution. Well, we look forward to... Well, I would say ESPN's uh, personnel decisions are an evolution. Oh, wait, I just got suspended. (laughs) That's very funny. I think you're right. (laughs) Well, Bob, I will not call you a liar on this podcast. I will not not, uh, refer to... uh, to your tenure at uh, ESPN. So you might be, I, I, would, I would defend your right uh, to free speech, but if you call me a liar, you better have video of my pants on fire. <laughs> you, you, might be, you might, however, be the missing link between ESPN's past and its future, Bob. Um, well, we'll look forward to whatever is up next. I'll probably come over to Slate, and I'm going to be looking at you guys very carefully. <laughs> All right, Bob. Thank you very much. We'll be on our best behavior. <laughs> Robert Lipsite was ESPN's ombudsman for 18 months, also a longtime New York Times columnist and author of the book Sports World, among many others. The accidental sports writer. Plug his recent memoir. Good recent memoir. Thank you, Stefan. All right. It is now time for Afterballs. And we've stepped away from UAB for a while, but you know, in the interim, we've done a little bit of research and we've discovered the real reason why the UAB football program was cut. It's not any kind of conspiracy because of Bear Bryant or anything. It's not because Alabama and Auburn fans don't want to support this Birmingham program. It's because the mascot is a European dragon. <laughs> it's, it's named Blaze. It is from Europe. It is described as a European dragon. Is there any... The South doesn't have its own dragon? <laughs> no dragons yeah, in Alabama? They wear, they wear white sheets. Point the ads. Sorry, South. <laughs> as a as a representative of the South, I'll say fair play, fair fair play there. Right. Um, but as we, as a representative of the South, who's specifically <laughs> targeted in all their marketing material, that's a good point. Yes, I did. I don't know if I mentioned this on the sh- the show before, but anytime anyone accuses me of being like you know I hate Florida State, yeah, or what have you, I recognize that it's a small number of fans that are horrible. Like I went to LSU. State. I'm an LSU fan. I went to many LSU. Ga- 
games where I was like, I am really not proud to be associated with that guy. Like I went to a game once where David Duke was campaigning, like when he ran for governor in the 90s, going through the stands and like was received with much acclaim. Like that was his base. Those are your people. Was Tiger Stadium. I mean, not everyone in Tiger <laughs> Stadium, but there were a lot of people that were his base. Big UAB there. fan. So David Duke. That does not make me that does not make me happy. Um, but the European Dragon, come on. Come on, UAB. If you want to survive in this current current college football landscape, why do you have a European dragon? Mike Pesca, what is your European dragon? Oh, his name is Gustav, and he breathes fire but feels pretty bad about it. But, you know, he adheres to all union rules. So anyway, a couple of weeks ago when the uh, Tennessee Titans played the Pittsburgh Steelers, it was your classic Ben Roethlisberger versus Zach Mettenberger matchup. And guess what that represented? Stefan. The first burger on burger in the NFL. It's, well, it's the longest uh, combination of quarterback surnames. That's it. The, the number of letters in the quarterback surnames, more letters ever. The previous record was Roethlisberger versus Ryan Fitzpatrick, which was a uh, combined, I think, 24 letters because Fitzpatrick has 11. Now, the weird thing, this I wasn't even thinking about that. I was watching the Minnesota Vikings game, or as I call it, the inevitable Jets loss. And Teddy Bridgewater was the quarterback. And I looked at his uh, uniform, and it just Bridgewater just seemed to take up a lot of space. Like, it's a kind of long name. It's 11 letters. Fitzpatrick is 11 letters. Bridgewater just seems to take up more space. So I started researching the fonts and I realized I was overthinking it. Basically, Bridgewater is a W. And a W will just throw everything off. It is the widest of the letters. It's like two letters. It's a double U. Yeah, it's really like a (laughs) W when you really get right down to it. It's actually kind of like a double V when you think about it. It's true. And in fact, in some European dragon breathing cultures, that's what they call it. Vikings use lowercase on their jerseys. Fitz. Fitzpatrick uh, is 11 letters. Bridgewater is 11 letters. But if you put, and you could do this experiment at home with any font, including Tahoma, Ariel, or Times, Bridgewater just eclipses Fitzpatrick. In fact, Kaepernick is 10 letters. And like I said, Fitzpatrick is 11 letters. Kaepernick is thicker than Fitzpatrick. So I don't really care about the number of letters. I care about the import. I care about how imposing it is. And yes, Roethlisberger, Mettenberger, that is clearly a matchup of heavily lettered individuals. Fitzpatrick took over the quarterbacking uh, duties late, but I can foresee if both of those those guys hold on to the job, there'll be a Fitzpatrick-Mettenberger matchup. Don't care about that. I'm looking forward to, if the schedules are announced, a Bridgewater-Rothlisberger matchup because those will be the two thickest last names but not having the most last letters. You know why Fitzpatrick falls down, right? What does Fitzpatrick have going against him? In his last name. He's got two eyes. Two eyes. Eyes and L's are the killers of the th- letter thickness. I've been thinking a lot about this over the last 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Are there that many last names that have multiple W's? Am I missing something obvious? Because I'm trying to think of like what would be the thickest yeah. possible last name. So you want your vowels to be A's or E's. Those mm-hmm. take up the uh, same amount of space. Other good letters are capital B's, but lowercase aren't great. P's are good, but W's and M's are good. Vavrinka. Vavrinka burger. Vavrinka yes. is good. Wa-wa-wawenstein. <laughs> I'm, type- I'm typing here in my in Ariel, all caps. Uh-huh. He's not a quarterback, but from my childhood, Chris Farisopoulos, also Greek mentioned once on this podcast, He's a little bit shorter than Roethlisberger, 
but longer mm. than Bridgewater. O's. He's got O's and P's and U's. He's got but a nice he, I know, wide. but he also has a, he also has just a large number of letters. Twelve. I'm talking about he's maximizing. Got he's got 12 letters. Okay, we got to maximize the letter thickness. It's pretty maximum. O, 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 U. He's got it going. Deceptively, hey. deceptively interesting. Stefan, what is your European dragon? Well, the 2015 Women's World Cup draw was over the weekend, and the USA wound up in the supposed group of death with ooh, Australia, Nigeria, and Sweden. But the highlight of the draw for me was this moment when the FIFA Blazers, who were opening the little balls with the slips of paper with the names of the countries on them, discovered that they made a mistake putting two teams from South America in the same group. Just to repeat, we put uh, Colombia with Brazil in Group E, which is not possible because it's the same confederation. It has to go to Group F. Yep. Colombia goes to F. That was Tatiana Eheni, FIFA's head of women's football, making all of my dreams come true, allowing me to die in peace, and most important, giving me the opportunity to finally do the afterball I have needed and wanted to do for years about my favorite, possibly beaten to death, but I don't care, European sportocratic catchphrase. And thanks to listener and sports writer Sarah Brady for pointing it out. I'm not going to deconstruct the Imperial Gallic shrug of it is not possible and in so doing risk destroying what makes it the perfect expression of dismissive patriarchal if we say it, it is so imperialistic international sporting snobism. As in, if anyone is saying the use of the artificial pitch is a question of discrimination, it is a nonsense, which FIFA General Secretary Jerome Valka said last week about the lawsuit over the use of turf at the women's tournament next summer in Canada. But lest you have been thinking all these years that I invented it is not possible to describe arrogant, duplicitous, nose-aloft, sports aristocrat wave-offs of matters that are most certainly possible, allow me to assure you that I did not. To wit, here is FIFA President for Life Sepp Blatter in 2004 calling for more stringent penalties for dangerous fouls. How can you imagine in any other profession that a dentist would try to demolish a dentist or a painter a painter, whatever it is not possible? In 2012, Blatter was asked by New Africa magazine, after nearly 40 years in FIFA, you have dealt with different kinds of people and situations. What has your experience taught you about life in general and human nature in particular? Blatter's response, it is not possible for a human being to disperse his efforts, and I have given everything to football. Then he name-dropped Nelson Mandela and the Pope. After a stampede over free tickets before the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, Blatter absolved FIFA of all responsibility. The FIFA organization, with all its ramifications, we have no police force. We cannot even take out a spectator from a stadium. We cannot do that. It is not possible, he said. FIFA also has no control over match fixing, Blatter said in 2010. We have to protect the players, and the players also have to be protected in their clubs, their leagues, their federation. We at FIFA cannot make an umbrella over all the players. It is not possible. When it comes to Blatter and his rival, Michel Platini, the head of the European Confederation UEFA, many things are not possible. Here's SEP in 2008 on a proposed quota rule for players of different nationalities on club teams. You cannot have 27 European states making the rules for 208 members of FIFA from all over the world. It is not possible. And here's Platini on the same subject. I can understand FIFA because they have 208 national associations and then there are 29 EU members who are all in our confederation. The philosophy is good, but for me, it is not possible. 
point to bladder. There were, in fact, 27 EU members at the time. Platini and bladder sound kind of the same. They do. The Daily Mail in September asked Sepp about the fact that Platini kind of hates him. The international organization called FIFA, and it is a big organization, and it must be in solidarity. We cannot say that one of the confederations shall be against FIFA. That is not possible. Truly, for FIFA, our favorite word string is a way of life, a general principle, you might say, literally a general principle right there in Section 3 of the FIFA Public Guidelines for Use of FIFA's Official Marks, and I quote, this section intends, and and the, the document speaks in that accent also, by the way. There should be a Mac talk. <laughs> Your sportocrat accent. <laughs> this section intends to assist third parties who wish to avoid any unauthorized association with the tournament. Clearly, it is not possible to set out all different situations or comment on the different legal sanctions that may apply in each country. Translation, we'll go after whoever the hell we want to go after. Let's finish where we started with next year's Women's World Cup. On the very first page of FIFA's general FAQs, the fifth frequently asked question is this. Will refunds be available before the competition begins? Oh, you know the answer, people. Once an order has been submitted, whether online or through the call center, it is not possible to change or cancel your ticket purchases. Tough luck, customers of FIFA. Nothing is possible. Nothing is ever possible. Josh, what's your European dragon? GameOps.com, Stefan, which I know you have bookmarked. It's the go-to site for game operations, a.k.a. in-game entertainment, a.k.a. mascots and dance teams and halftime shows, has announced the winners of its 2014 awards. And those winners are for Best Game Promotion, the Brooklyn Cyclone Seinfeld Night. For Best Mascot, the Houston Astros Orbit, the European Dragon, uh, finished in uh, last place, I'm guessing. Uh, best halftime act, the Chinese acrobat Rong Niu, who goes by the nom de halftime Red Panda and is known for balancing on a 10-foot unicycle while balancing bowls on her head and flipping additional bowls from her uh, foot onto that top-of-head bowl stack. Uh, Red Panda this year beat out past best act honorees Blue Man Group, Quick Change, wow. the man and woman who changed clothes with greater, great alacrity. And Whiplash the Cowboy Monkey, a white-headed capuchin monkey that rides a border collie. And thus, we have arrived to the subject of today's afterball. <laughs> Radar Online describes Whiplash the Cowboy Monkey thusly. Dressed in full rodeo gear, including a cowboy hat, chaps, and a skinny tie, the monkey keeps his hound on a tight rein as he wheels around the arena, rounding up sheep and rearing dramatically. Radar adds, when he's done for the day, he goes to our motorhome for dinner. According to his trainer, his favorite foods are pears, apples, bananas, and especially strawberries, if you're thinking about buying food for the cowboy monkey. According to WhiplashTheCowboyMonkey.com, Whiplash the Cowboy Monkey is truly a fan favorite, three-time pro rodeo entertainer of the year, and an international star who has been putting smiles on faces for years. You might recognize him for his commercials for the fast food chain Taco John's, the only fast food chain in America that is not sponsoring a college football bowl game. Are you sure? <laughs> as of this morning, when I, when I uh, was researching this, no. But as of this afternoon, who's to say? On that whiplashthecowboymonkey.com internet site, you can also buy Whiplash the Cowboy Monkey Saves the Day, a children's book in which he and his best friend, Basset Hound Cattle Kate, encounter the troublesome Yote Gang, rustling the sheep herd from the Incross K Ranch. Spoiler alert, 
he and Boogie catch the ragged bunch of outlaws and save the day. Watch out, Curious George. <laughs> Whiplash was trained by a guy named Tommy Lucia for a long time. In recent years, he sold the act to another guy named Kenny Pettit. Pettit and Whiplash, you might be surprised to learn, are not the only monkey riding a dog show in town. Cow- <laughs> Cowboy monkeys are actually a thing. There's Team Ghost Riders, which has several primate canine teams touring the country. Tim Wild Thang Leopard. Lepard. I'm just going to go Leopard. Yeah. Why, why would he yeah. blow that opportunity to call himself? <laughs> he that? is the proprietor of Team Ghost Riders, describe, and he describes one of the teams as such. Uh, the third team is Mega and Dog. My cousin Larry named this monkey and really loves him. Sam, stage name Mega, is the leader of the monkeys. This monkey has a stage name uh, and wants to ride the toughest dog. He is riding Dog. Dog came from Georgia and can be very hard-headed. He loves to be out front in the limelight, a real go-getter. So in summation, there's a monkey with two names and a dog whose name is Dog. Now, this is where <laughs> an amusing afterball takes its inevitable turn, to a, turn. Dis- to a discussion of animal cruelty. Da, da, da. Lucia, the former trainer of Whiplash, Waved away such concerns, telling Radar, I rescued him from a stinking cage in Florida when he was just a baby. And I can assure you he'd let me know if life wasn't good. Case case closed. (laughs) But not case closed for Dan Nosowitz of the site The Dodo. He writes Whiplash's act, finds him dressed in a tiny cowboy outfit and strapped to the back of a border collie so he cannot get off the dog. He reports that Tommy Lucia is cited for various violations, including exhibiting without a license, failure to provide a program of veterinary care, an environment enrichment plan to promote the psychological well-being of primates. The team Ghost Riders guy, too, has been cited for possession of expired medication to unclean facilities to failing to be present for inspections. It's like an NFL team. <laughs> we got to get Nate Jackson on here. Talk about how these these monkeys need to be smoking marijuana, not taking these (laughs) monkey pain pills. Uh, Capuchins aren't trained to ride, but are merely strapped to the back of a dog. I don't know if we should be listening to the dodo, though, as that's an extinct bird. Anyway, the dog sprints in unpredictable directions. It stops, it starts, it dashes to the side. They train the dog better than the monkey. Uh, Dan Nosowitz writes, Whiplash's name is unfortunately apt. Riding a dog can, according to activists, result in damage to the monkey's spine. And so this afterball ends with potential damage to a monkey's spine. Next time you look at a cute monkey wearing a cowboy hat and a skinny tie on the top of a border collie, maybe think twice about what you're betting. We would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. You can also get our uh, the Levine Pesca Greenwood Cemetery segment if you subscribe. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Folau. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember, Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan 
to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.